0: Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yeider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Kelly Myman-Hawk, Managing Partner and Trade Practice Lead at McLarty Associates. She previously worked at the Office of the United States Trade Representative as Director for Brazil and the Southern Cone, where she had primary responsibility for trade negotiations with Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today on Trade Matters. Pleasure to be here. All right, let's talk about USMCA, something you mentioned you're doing a lot of work on right now, as preparations are being made for this agreement to enter into force on July 1st. Um, As you know very well, this was always going to be complex for the auto industry, given more stringent auto rules of origin, including a first-of-its-kind labor value content provision. Now it seems like an especially heavy lift for the auto industry because the COVID-19 pandemic has really disrupted the highly integrated North American supply chain in the auto industry and other industries as well. But we've seen auto industry representatives in all three countries, U.S., Mexico, Canada, ask their respective governments to delay the auto rules entry into force. Members of Congress have made a similar ask to the U.S. Trade Representative's office and even a private sector advisory group to the Customs and Border Protection Um, has also um, made a similar uh, recommendation that this be delayed in terms of how it impacts the auto industry when it enters into force. So all that to say, what is your view of whether July 1st is really a realistic timeframe for USMCA to enter into force or is there a strong case to be made for delaying implementation?
1: Well, at at this point, and thanks for the question, this is the million dollar question is entering into force. And at this point, July one is go date, uh, according to USMCA. Uh, you know, once all three countries have notified, um, you know, you're you're good to go after that that kind of sixty day plus a few days time period uh, that that the agreement uh, stipulates. Um, that said, um, there are areas where it's not quite clear yet if we are ready to press play. Um, You know, in some areas, it's not a big deal. Um, I think it's important to remember that while there are very critical updates in USMCA uh, around uh, digital and regulatory issues in particular, a lot of USMCA is uh, included in the original NAFTA, so the countries are already ready to go for that, or TPP, where both Canada and Mexico uh, remain part of the CPTPP, so, so they're ready to go in that regard as well. Um, But if we're talking about autos, or we're talking about um, not just the labor component of rules of origin for autos that you referenced, um, but also the rapid response mechanism, which is a special uh, dispute settlement mechanism that allows for investigations on a factory by factory, company by company basis, um, those are pretty innovative. And uh, it's not clear at least excuse me, to me at this point, that um, the mechanisms are, uh, you know, ready to go um, to implement those. For example, um, it's not clear yet uh, what body and what, uh, you know, mechanism will define what part of that 40% of your labor that goes into a vehicle Uh, At at $16 an hour or more, you know, what falls into that bucket and what doesn't fall into that bucket, Um, you know, you've got the fact that uh, the uniform regs um, which need to detail exactly how various aspects of the agreement, including rules of origin uh, will take place. Um, You know, those those uniform regulations, and they're uniform because they're consistent between the three countries, between Canada, Mexico, and the United States, typically uniform regs are developed over a period of time, and the countries consult about it, and there's public comment periods, and, you know, that would be a more typical course. At this point, we've got entry into force a mere weeks away. And we have not yet seen the uniform regs. Um, we understand that they should be available on June 1st, but for, with entry into force July 1st, that doesn't leave a lot of time for either comment or for clarification. Because it's it's important to rem- to remind, you know, rules of origin in particular are very very technical. So it's often the case that regulations will come out, uniform regulations will come out, and it's not 100% clear exactly, you know, what you're supposed to do, right? So there's usually some sort of a consultative process that, that takes place because, to be clear, you know, the, the auto industry wants to comply and is prepared to comply. Um, I think the issue is um, that there's, I think, an understandable Uh, nervousness around how they can be ready to comply as soon as July 1st um, when these uniform regs aren't available and when they, in great measure, the battle they're fighting in the day-to-day is not preparing for USMCA implementation. It's dealing with essential and non-essential industry determinations in all three countries, uh, Canada, the United States, and Mexico, that touch the auto industry due to COVID-19. Um, no one in any sector right now uh, is operating as business as usual. I mean, everyone has had to alter their their uh, their their business models, uh, the way that they operate, the way that they manufacture, due to COVID, and so it's incredibly difficult to take on that task of compliance. Um, you know, while you're while you're having to manage, you know, a pandemic, <laughs> it goes without saying. So, um, so I, maybe I'll just leave it there for any follow up questions.
0: Yeah, sure. So you know, there's there's a lot of focus here on the auto industry um, because that was just a major portion of the agreement where um, the rules became more stringent um, that the auto industry had to comply with. I mean, there were auto rules of origin in NAFTA, but these are more stringent here in USMCA. Um, is there a way for parts of the agreement to go forward without, um, uh, while still giving the auto industry more time to you know, regain its footing after this pandemic or, um, just have more time to figure out uh, how they're going to deal with the, you know, developing the uniform ranks that the three countries are working on or how they might prepare themselves to comply.
1: Yeah, how they can actually come into compliance, which right. again is the goal, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I think that, you know, the good news is um, that all of the parties involved from all three countries want this to be successful. So I think that that's, that's a good starting point. Um, and yes, I do think there's a case that can be made for phasing in um, the autos piece for sure. And perhaps elements of the labor piece as well, um, it, just to be sure that this is successful. And you, you did see both uh, the US and Mexico come out with transition regimes um, that you know, you, auto companies can ask for uh, a, you know, a delay in their implementation. What worries me about that, and that's, and that's great, that shows some flexibility. But my concern is that I have not seen anything that would guarantee that you would not suffer the the duty penalties if you are not in compliance by July 1. In other words, you know, if, if it's a, yes, you've got time to, to transition, but during that transition time, you're going to have to pay the duties uh, as though you were not in compliance with USMCA or NAFTA, um, then it's a bit symbolic, right? So. I think that is the certainty, particularly in this, you know, uniquely uncertain time economically. That is the certainty that 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 companies are looking for, um, and and I think you know on the the you're asking about autos, but on the labor piece as well. I guess I would argue, you know, there were more democratic votes for USMCA than any trade agreement in history. And a huge reason for that was because of this rapid response ne- mechanism. This, this that would allow for petitioners to look uh, and investigate, um, look at factories on a factory by factory basis, and, and and be sure that they're in compliance with certain labor standards. That was a big deal, and the U.S. labor movement was uh, was and is excited and proud to have that as part of an agreement. I would hate to have us rush to implement and not have the panel's fully decided and not, you know, frankly, I even think about how do you even go and investigate a factory right now where right. traffic is as it is, you know, so I just think there's a lot of open questions and, um, you know, just looking at it as I sit in Washington, I have, unfortunately I have to look at things from a political perspective more than I might want to, but. Um, but, you know, both Republicans and Democrats want that piece to be successful because that's what allowed Democrats to 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 confidently vote for the agreement in great measure. So, I do hope that as we near the July one date, that there'll be some some real thought given to uh, how we can be sure that that these most innovative pieces of USMCA come together in a way that 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 can make everyone you know feel like we've we've put together something that's going to be an enduring success in a model going forward. Right. So the the
0: rapid response mechanism with uh, respect to the labor provision that you mentioned, for example, is that getting as much attention right now as the difficulty faced by the auto industry with complying with USMCA? Because as you said, it's hard to see how, um, for example, the US could establish labor attaches in the embassies and consulates in Mexico, or how you would investigate a factory when everything has been so um, paralyzed to some degree you know, by yeah. um, the COVID-19 response.
1: Absolutely, I'll, I'll say this: there are a lot of people working hard on both of these questions. So I absolutely think that there there is a you know a full court press effort to uh, to be ready uh, for on both of these fronts. I think the media has spoken more about the autos issue because that has a that has an immediate jobs impact right in the United States uh, and in Mexico and in Canada. So. Uh, I think it, it makes sense, particularly in the fraught economic environment that we're facing right now with COVID-19, that that, that is where, um, you know, the media would more immediately focus, just get, uh, given the on-the-ground realities in a lot of these, uh, you know, states, uh, uh, U.S. states and Mexican states and Canadian provinces, uh, you know, there's there's going to be a real impact if this uh, doesn't go smoothly. And uh, so I think that's why you're just hearing about it a bit more, but there's a lot of work going on on both fronts.
0: Okay. So shifting to another issue related to this that you mentioned, and that's the definition of the phrase essential business, which is, oh is causing a lot of issues, yes, right now. <laughs> um, and just to, to remind our listeners, the issue there is that Mexico seems to be taking a narrower uh, view of what constitutes essential business. And this has to do with you know Mexico's countermeasures to prevent the spread of COVID-19 by um, closing factories temporarily. And yet, our supply chain, which is another phrase we're hearing a, a lot about these days, is um, is really integrated with Mexico's, with the auto industry and other sectors too. Um, so, how how do you think um, the two countries, the U.S. and Mexico, are working through this? You know, the Mexican Foreign Minister Marcela Ebrard has said that Mexico will not reopen closed factories, including those that make, you know, materials needed for food and medical goods, until Mexican health official, official advice um, His government that it's safe to do so. Um, And that he said, you know, that Mexico won't change its definition of essential businesses to include supply chain needs. So this Mm -hmm. seems like a pretty deep division. Um, How is the US working through this definitional issue with Mexico, do you think? And how might this also impact USMCA implementation?
1: Yeah, you know, this is playing out in the day to day, literally. And I think that what you're seeing on the essential, non essential question, which is probably what I'm spending about at least 50% of my time on right now, Um, you're seeing how challenging dealing with an unprecedented health situation like we have right now, how challenging that can be in a federal system. Um, we're seeing that here in the United States, where different states are looking at uh, openings in different ways, whether you're talking about manufacturing or in Nebraska, the meatpacking plants, um, you know, or in Mexico, you know, auto parts. Uh, so, I, you know, the, and, and their states have also looked at this in different ways. You also have very different prevalence rates um, going from state to state. So, for example, in Nueva León, Uh, where Monterrey is, Monterrey is one of the big industrial centers in Mexico, their prevalence rates are actually quite low. So, you know, if you could look at, uh, you know, what the realistic health impact would be of very carefully and with appropriate, you know, health and safety measures, opening factories in Nuevo León might be, that is not going to be the same as it is in some of the Mexican states where prevalence rates are much higher. So, um, you know, I I think that this is... um, a great example of uh, you know making policy, uh, you know, as we go, <laughs> um, because it is an unprecedented situation. This isn't something that we've had to face before, uh, and because of that, it's something you you wouldn't even think about considering, um, you know, in a trade agreement like USMCA. You know, I will say this: um, what one of the most lasting impacts of the COVID nineteen uh, crisis has been. Is thinking: Does it make sense for us to have our supply chains as far flung as they are? To be sourcing as much as we are from China? Now, that's a dynamic. That's a you know a dynamic that was already kind of underway, right? Um, and it was just intensified and magnified by the COVID crisis. Um, now, what country would be better positioned? when we're speaking the US market, of course, to take advantage of that dynamic than Mexico, right? I mean, NAFTA was the original regionalization of supply chains. Everyone's talking now about regionalization of supply chains. It's very uh, fashionable. Well, we were fashionable in North America first. You know, We <laughs> already started doing this over 25 years ago. Um, and so it does give Mexico a competitive advantage. So I do hope, uh, and obviously health and safety has to come first um, for any government. Um, but I do hope that we can collaborate uh, with Mexico and, and, um, and frankly, you know, investors from all over the world that are invested in Mexico, uh, you know, that are manufacturing there, that, that we can bring global best practices, not even just North America best practices on how to open safely. And that, yes, we can take into consideration, um, you know, how our supply chains interact and, uh, you know, what the impact might be uh, economically to not considering um, those connections when they're relevant. Um, but again, you know, it's a, you are seeing a lot of push and pull. Um, and, and you see it here in the United States. You're, and, and just imagine that, and that's exactly what you're seeing in Mexico, where where the federal government will, you know, make a statement um, with respect to opening plans and, and state governments are, are you know tasked with implementing that and might view it in a little bit of a different way. So it's 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 a political dance. I'd like to think that um, that you know North America will land in the right spot on that and that that will be uh, a competitive advantage for North America as economies come back online. Um, that will be very important that we are able to do so in North America in a very um, integrated and a very impactful way, um, so that we you know not only can kind of make up for lost ground that we've lost here during the months of closure, um, but that we can also have a leg up uh, on on others that are only now looking to regionalize those supply chains.
0: Interesting, okay, just a quick follow up there because as you said, we've heard so much discussion right now about this idea of regionalizing supply chains or localizing supply chains more or bringing them back, so to speak. you know, and, and we've also heard a lot about this idea of building resilient supply chains and what, what that might mean. Do you think that there's any risk that a supply chain being too concentrated in one region makes it less resilient um, or not?
1: Yeah, I mean, here's what I would say. I think, I think that a lot of the discussion of regionalization of supply chains is not based in the reality of how companies source inputs at this point in time. Um, for the most part, you know, companies, again, for the most part, try to manufacture where it is economically feasible, close to where their end customer is. Depending on what the good is, how heavy it is, how hard it is to transport, etc. Um, you know, there will always be uh, inputs into, a, in particular, high tech production. So. Your automobiles, your computers, your smartphones, et cetera. There are always going to be components um, that are so high tech and so specialized that they need to come from a limited number of countries. Uh, pharmaceuticals, another issue that people are talking a lot about now, the active ingredient in pharmaceuticals, um, you know, often is not available in every country, um, and and so I think that we're going to have to temper this move towards regionalization of supply chains with the reality of uh, where goods are available for a reasonable price. Um, And there's going to be, I suspect, a great deal of push-pull between this need, particularly today with national budgets globally under enormous strain due to COVID, um, I think we're going to see, um, you know, I hope we're going to see some, some rather than politicized, I hope that we'll see some really pragmatic discussions about, uh, you know, what the, the, the most efficient way is to ensure that supply chains are, as you say, you know, resilient, but, you know, diversified uh, enough and, and with access to the highest tech products so that at the end of the day, we're not making you know products that no one can afford. Right,
0: it sounds like a, an important point you've made there at the end that I, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about. Um, and we'll have to pick up on that again. Um, a couple more questions on, on USMCA. You know, We've talked a lot about the auto industry so far, but what, what's likely to be the greatest non-auto industry impact of USMCA implementation for the US? So in other words, which sectors um, kind of have the most work to do in order to comply with USMCA or stand to gain the most um, from it?
1: Yeah, as I say, I mean, uh, most sectors are, are pretty ready to go. Um, you know, I think that the, the autos and the labor provisions are the standouts because they are just those those portions of the agreement are so new. Um, I do think that the uh, the digital chapter is, uh, it's a standout. And, you know, every company is a digital company now. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's no such thing as a non-digital company, and that's only been magnified during COVID, where I think everybody has a digital strategy. If they didn't before, they do now. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I think it's great that we're going into, um, you know, the the second part of this year with um, a very strong, um, you know, very strong rules on digital trade that should uh, benefit all in the sector. Um, but honestly, the, the biggest win of getting USMCA, uh, you know, through is the the lack of uncertainty, or the, excuse me, reducing uncertainty. Um, and uh, you know, the, the the biggest hit really that we took as a North American market during the renegotiation was this constant uh, uncertainty on, you know, will will a new deal be reached? Uh, might the U.S. withdraw? Uh, Will all the parties be able to get it through its Congress? And at this point, you know, particularly agriculture sitting in Nebraska, um, you know, the the ag sector absolutely lives and dies by NAFTA. I mean, if you look at every state in the union, um, virtually every single state has Canada and Mexico as their number one and number two, sometimes in different orders, sometimes China's Mm -hmm. in there too. But, you know, it's usually the, the number one or two export destinations. So, uh, America's farmers really needed that certainty needed to know that the rules of the the road for for North American trade are set so um, you know and and frankly during the renegotiation we saw some purchasing patterns change right um, you know some Mexicans would say well I'm not sure I'm going to be able to buy you know my wheat or my corn uh, from uh, you know Nebraska farmers anymore maybe I should start looking at Brazilians I mean that that happened. Um, so I think uh, taking that uncertainty off the table is is, is just going to be terrific for all sectors of the American economy.
0: Okay, and that certainty is coming July 1st when it really is in force, <laughs> sounds
1: like. Yes, maybe with, yes, we'll see what happens with autos and labor. I hope <laughs> right. there's a bit of a phase in, but I'm a hopeful person, so. <laughs> <laughs> Okay,
0: last question on USMCA. Um, and this this harks back to a conversation I had in December with Ken Smith Ramos, and I know you know him, um, who was the lead negotiator on USMCA for Mexico. Um, and yes, I thought going said, back
1: to Georgetown days. When yes, we were your, your college yes, days. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> um, so He
0: said something really interesting, I thought, about the periodic review mechanism in USMCA, which will require the three countries to review it every six years to analyze how it's going, whether changes might be needed. And he really talked about the public consultation element of that periodic review and the Mm -hmm. participation of civil society. And I'm going to quote from the interview with him. He said that this um, element could, quote, try to bring trade agreements closer to the people and make them feel that they can have a voice in how these trade agreements get implemented, unquote. Um, and you know, I've talked to lots of people over the last 18 months or so who don't really feel like they've got much ability to influence or change trade policy. So do you foresee, through the USMCA periodic review mechanism, um, do you foresee that as as being a conduit for any person to truly have a voice in US trade policy beyond the usual players will this really be a a meaningful mechanism for public input
1: Yeah I I love Ken but I don't think <laughs> we need the public consultation I mean I don't think we need the 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 mechanism the check-in mechanism to do that I mean I've I worked at USTR we would have you know, people checking in all the time. I, I was there for the fifth anniversary of NAFTA back in the day, right? Um, and, and we were constantly getting feedback, um, you know, from companies, from labor groups. There are set in our system, which is different from the Mexican system. We have congressionally mandated uh, consultation uh, groups that uh, meet regularly with government officials. So I, I would hate to have us wait um, for the review uh, period to pass um, to uh, try to you know perfect uh, the agreement, I think that you know sure what 's on paper is what 's agreed and, and and that's you know the, that is now USmCA and those are the rules that will follow, and that 's what companies need to be able to invest in North America is that certainty. Um, but, you know, as I was saying before, with respect to the implementing regs, there's always areas where you can clarify, where you can, um, you know, and, and also too, because we're dealing with this, this new labor mechanism, that's going to be iterative. I mean, this is new. And so I think that we're going to have to, um, you know, do a good job throughout the life of USMCA um, in continuing to... Um, you know, build support for it. And I, and I, I'll say this, um, you know, and I actually back at Georgetown wrote my undergraduate thesis on NAFTA before they even started the negotiations. So I've mm. literally been watching and caring about this agreement since I was a teenager. And uh, you know, but I, I think we did a really bad job of trying to uh, bring along civil society um, in um, you know, understanding the benefit of having uh, a North American competitiveness zone, which is what I've always called NAFTA, um, because at the end of the day, that's what it is. And so uh, I do think that that's a bit of a gift, if I can say that Donald Trump gave us, because by threatening to withdraw from NAFTA, you had people uh, in the Congress and, you know, various stakeholders that, you know, typically are pretty critical of NAFTA. Um, NAFTA is always a punching bag in every presidential campaign, you know, Republican, Democrat, you know, whatever. Um, but it's really funny because the minute it was at risk, people were like, "No, no, 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 no! We actually this this creates jobs in my state." So it had you know kind of the the perverse but happy perverse effect <laughs> of having people realize what would happen if we didn't have integrated North American trade. So I hope that that. Dynamic um, won't be lost. I hope that that lesson won't be forgotten, and that we can, uh, you know, continue to, in a pragmatic way, um, you know, move forward with further North American integration. I think it'll only make us more competitive. Uh, you know, as as but but not necessarily waiting for for those check-in times that are mandated by the agreement.
0: So if I can just briefly follow up on on this, you you're a Nebraska native, uh, native of I Omaha. Am. Born so, and raised Millard yes.
1: South High School. <laughs> you
0: know, got to
1: give, got to give a shout out for the uh, the uh, the high school there.
0: There you go, Millard South. Um, so you know, if you were talking to a group of let's just say Nebraska agriculture producers, and um, you know they told you they just they don't feel like their voice matters necessarily, or that they have a an effective way to to make their voice heard on trade policy, what would you tell them to do?
1: Well, I think um, farmers ha- have. I think a great opportunity to be a voice for not just their sector, but for the country on the importance of uh, trade, the importance of having reliable, consistent export markets that you can plan around, knowing what seed you need to put in the ground because you know that either in Mexico or China or Europe, uh, there will be a buyer on the other side. I think that we've seen a lot of uh, trade uncertainty um, over the, the the course of the Trump administration, and and you know he was elected because he you know was was rejecting a lot of previous you know post World War II trade policy. Right, um, we're a democracy that's meaningful. Um, so I say this uh, not necessarily in a critical way, but in a fact based way um, that you know that swinging of the pendulum from the World War, post-World War II trading order of trying to expand uh, you know, glo- not just U.S. exports, but global trade and seeing that as in the U.S. national interest, the swinging of that pendulum in, in, in public opinion to the other side and starting to doubt, mm, is that good for us, is that not good for us? I think that you know the loudest voice I would hope in this debate would be the sector that benefits the most in the U.S. economy from exports, and that is agriculture. So um, there are a number of you know organizations, uh, you know, from the Farm Bureau to you know corn growers. I mean, I, you know, every practically every uh, crop has it has an organization that represents its interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in Washington, we we love our organizations, right? Um, but you know, I think that there are a lot of opportunities to raise the voice, um, and and one of the, you know, actually, with the passage of USMCA, one of the most um, you know compelling groups that fought for it was called Farmers for Free Trade. They did a great mm-hmm. job, and uh, I actually they had an RV. That was, uh, you know, wrapped and you know said farmers for free trade and had pictures of farmers and corn and stuff on the side. It was really cool, and I was um, I was upset because I wanted to uh, ride around in the RV when they were in Nebraska, and it didn't work out with my work <laughs> schedule. But um, but you know, long way to say that you know grassroots matters too. I mean, this is this is something um, that I do think um, you know no one understands the need to trade more than a farmer, and so I, I think that finding ways either as individuals, you know, with your represented, uh, your representatives and senators, uh, local officials, um, you know, it, it all matters. And, and honestly, the, it's, it's a, an important part of education, because not everyone, you know, if you're not from Nebraska, like I am, you know, maybe you don't understand the agricultural sector. So I think mm-hmm. it's a it's an important role that the American farmer has to play and that a university like University of Nebraska has to play as well.
0: All right, thanks, Kelly. Let's shift for just a few minutes to Brazil before we close out here. Um, You have done a lot of work um, in Brazil and US-Brazil trade. Yep. Uh, uh, The US and Brazil are reportedly aiming to conclude an agreement on trade um, sometime before the end of 2020. And this is not a comprehensive trade deal, to be clear. It's not focused on tariffs, but focused rather on quote, trade rules, transparency, trade facilitation, and good regulatory practices. That can sound a little arcane. So if you could break that down just a little for us and explain, you know, what you would see as the potential big wins coming out of a limited uh, trade deal like this.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that it's, I think it's a positive that we're talking with Brazil. I mean, it's, um, we've always had a difficult trading relationship because there have been issues that are very, very important to the United States to include in a comprehensive agreement, uh, like intellectual property, um, you know, uh, services, uh, government procurement, et cetera. Um, that the Brazilians just weren't that interested in, in discussing. Um, you know I should I should say that what they're talking about discussing now, while it's a limited deal, it's a limited non-tariff deal is what they're talking about because uh, under Article 1 of our Constitution, um, the the Senate and House, uh, you know the Congress have uh, responsibility over tariffs mm-hmm. um, So this is an agreement that um, will be going forward. Um, you know, without needing congressional approval, because it really does just address those rules that you're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, I I get it that regulatory issues don't sound super sexy, but when you're doing business in an overseas market, uh, it's so important to have uh, reliable time frames. You know, how long will it take for the regulatory approval for my innovative corn seed to be uh, approved. I mean, I I, I work with uh, Corteva, for example, in in um, uh, on these issues uh, around the world, and you know, American innovative agriculture uh, brings an enormous amount of value, uh, not just to the American economy, uh, but also to farmers around the world. Um, but you know, you've got to get those seeds approved to be able to, to use them, right? And to sell right. them. Mm-hmm. So um, so I think in particular that the thing that makes me most excited, especially looking at it, you know, with, from a Nebraska perspective, is that the Brazilians are very aligned with us on the need for high-tech ag. Um, you know, if you're talking about seeds or crop protection, um, you know, uh, products, um, they, they get it that they have to farm efficiently. And, and they're the most competitive... They're actually probably a little bit more competitive than us even they've got amazing soil and and they're one of the most competitive uh, agricultural markets in the world so if we can align on regulatory practices that allow us to kind of unleash that technology in a way that helps to feed the world better I think that's terrific um, then trade facilitation that's just making goods flow better um, you know customs um, you know procedures again stuff that's you know might not going to make the front page of the Omaha World Herald or anything, but it's, but to folks that are actually doing business, it matters a lot. You know, how long is it going to take for my goods to get uh, through customs? And am I going to be able to get it to my end customer in time uh, for their factory to stay open? Um, You know, those are all, it's, it kind of harkens back a little bit to your question on the essential, -essential, non-essential factory determinations in Mexico. I mean, you, you know, companies need to know when their goods can get to their facilities so that they can plan. And uh, hopefully the rules that we come up with between the United States and Brazil over the course of this year, it's an ambitious timeframe given everything that's going on, but I think it's doable and, uh, and hopefully it'll, uh, it'll lead uh, to, to positives on both sides. All
0: right, um, you know, you you've been involved deeply in, in trade and including US-Brazil trade and economic relations throughout your career. So I'd like to ask you a big picture question Um, Particularly when it comes to agriculture, Brazil's an agriculture powerhouse, of course. Um, Farmers in Nebraska know that very well. Um, How have you seen this overall U.S.-Brazil trade and economic relationship evolve over the time you've been working on these issues, particularly when it comes to agriculture? What things, for example, have improved and what remains really challenging?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the collaboration on biotech has, has been, uh, you know, a plus, as I said before. Uh, that's definitely, there's always more we could do, but it is an area where we have good dialogue uh, is, is on the issue of agricultural technology. I um, mean, what, what the Brazilians would love to do, and this has been an impediment, frankly, at the World Trade Organization to us, you know, coming up with any sort of a global deal, frankly, um, you know, on, on, on trade. Um, what, something that really frustrates the Brazilians is the level of agricultural subsidies and domestic supports in the United States and in Europe. Um, you know, from a Brazilian perspective, they say, okay, you know, we're efficient without subsidies you're efficient, but you get heavily subsidized or you have domestic supports. Um, and, and, and Brazil, you know, it's a, still an emerging market, right? It doesn't have the budget to be able to to do anything of the nature of the, you know, uh, the CAP, uh, the Common Agricultural Policy mm-hmm. in Europe or, or our programs here in the U.S. So that's, that's always going to be a burr in the side, right? Um, uh, just because those programs, I don't need to tell you, as you sit there in Lincoln, are you know, uh, sacrosanct here uh, in American politics. Um, and uh, obviously uh, over the course of the trade war with China and, and now, uh, you know, farmers getting hurt by COVID-19, um, that level of support uh, from the federal government has only increased, right? So, um, you know, that's something that I think on ag in particular will always be kind of dangling out there with Brazil. Um, but you know, I think with any trade trading partner, it's important to try to focus on where you can make progress and where you can't. Um, and certainly particularly coming off of the economic downturn that we're all facing around COVID, um, this is not a good time to talk about subsidies. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so no no prospects probably on the horizon for a truly comprehensive FTA with Brazil, which no. I suppose would would that run into its membership in Mercosur? That would probably open up a whole different set of issues.
1: It opens up a whole different set of issues, and and I'll say this: the Trump administration has been more open than previous administrations to doing mini deals. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at the deal that they did with with Japan, for example, right. you know, it it was nowhere near comprehensive. Um, so, you know, it's 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 kind of a a new day when it comes to you know what you actually can call a trade agreement uh you know in washington terms um Mm -hmm. so i i think we should just keep talking with brazil and see how far we got
0: all right we'll be looking at that later throughout the course of this year too okay kelly the last question and i ask this of every guest on the show is what have you read lately about trade and i know you read a lot about trade because i've heard you talk about it before Um, but what have you read lately about trade that's been particularly striking to you
1: well, the, the two books that I uh, have read this year on trade, um, I'll, I'll recommend both of them, uh, but folks can decide which one is their speed. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, uh, one, which is a lighter read, is Trade is Not a Four-Letter Word uh, by Fred Hochberg. Uh, I actually did a, a plug for the McLarty Associates podcast. I did a, an interview with Fred uh, talking mm-hmm. about his book a, a few weeks ago. Um, and it does a really good job of breaking down complex, uh, because trade poly is arcane, right? I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it's, it's not something um, you know, that you're going to just like, pick up light reading about. But this actually is light reading. It, he makes it fun. He talks about uh, a number of items uh, you know, from a college degree to Game of Thrones to uh, a taco bowl to a banana and, and talks about you know, how those services and goods represent uh, you know, global trade, um, so it's a lighter look. It's a lot of fun. Um, one that I loved, but you need to be a really hardcore trade nerd to get into this one is uh, Clashing Over Commerce by Doug Irwin. Yes. Um, and it's this thing is like the Manhattan phone book. It is really thick, um, and it uh, but it goes through American history all the way back to Revolutionary times completely through the optic of trade policy. I loved it. It was a, tr- a true page turner for me. And the thing that I liked the most about it is that, you know, we've been going through, as I was talking about before, such uncertain times when it comes to trade policy. And there's been so much trade policy uncertainty. And, you know, there, uh, you know, a lot of folks that are in my little kind of trade nerd ecosystem, you know, lament, oh, you know, this is, the worst of times, and we're turning away from the post-World War II trading system, and, and, you know, we're becoming protectionist, and oh no, and, you know, some of that may be true, um, but what was really great about this book to me is that, you know, if you look at various chapters of U.S. history, it's always been this pendulum, right, between, you know, those who need to export, those farmers we were talking about before, and folks that are, are worried about foreign competition. This is something that literally goes back to, you know, the Boston Tea Party, it goes back to the Civil War. I mean, this is, there have been moments in our history where we've had these inflection points, right? So I found that somewhat comforting <laughs> to think that, you know, the moment that we're at right now in trade policy, it may seem really complicated. And there are days that I want to beat my head against the wall. But um, this is all part of, you know, the American story. And part of our challenge is going to be to get these policy prescriptions right in the next chapter.
0: Thank you, Kelly. You know, I do have questioning over commerce as well. You can take it at your own pace. <laughs>
1: but it's <laughs> a really useful
0: reminder though that um, trade has always been hard. Um, and I always. did- Yes, always. And I did listen to your podcast as well with Fred Hochberg on the book, Trade is on a Four-Letter Word. That was a really fun listen
1: as well. So Yeah, it. Fred's a blast. Yeah, yeah, it was a good time. It was a good time.
0: Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast today. Thanks for sharing your time and insight. This has been
1: really useful and really enjoyable. No. Well, Jill, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. And I love any any excuse to get back to my Nebraska roots. And uh, uh, both of my parents and my sister went to University of Nebraska. So even though I didn't go there, I feel like I've got, you know, some, some Husker link there. Uh, so uh, just a lot of fun to be here with you today.
0: That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Bryce Duskett and JC Toman for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yeuterinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at yeuterunl. Opinions expressed on Trade Matters are solely those of the guest or host, and not the Yeuter Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.